As we come to the scriptures, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Loving Father, thank you so much that you speak to us by your word. Please help us understand what was happening as Paul and Silas and Timothy went and brought the gospel to the Macedonians. And help us understand what that means for us personally as we seek your guidance today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you ever feel an uncertainty about the future. Uh, Is climate change sending our world into environmental chaos? Will another global financial crisis erode your life savings? Is rapid technological change going to make your career redundant? Will you get the marks you need to get into the course you want? Is something about to happen that will affect your closest relationships? Will your health improve or deteriorate? Will Jesus return this year? Uh, These are just some of a few uncertainties that we face about the future. And if we're not careful, we'll be so depressed we'll never get out of bed. But when we know the true and living God, we can be certain that he is in control of everything. Everything big, everything small, everything personal, everything global. But how do you actually know what God wants you to do personally? How do you make big decisions about the future? I've had to make big decisions along the way. Do I marry Mandy? Do I go to more theological college to become a minister? How many kids do we have? Uh, And one stage we decided to buy a house, which is a pretty big investment. And I've made decisions about which church we serve in. We're here, we've chosen a jamboree rather than somewhere else, and there's been a whole path that's taken us there. Uh, a bit over a year ago, I felt a real conviction that our church here needed a full-time minister, and uh, it seemed logical that that person would be me. It was a big decision for Mandy and me to make, and we are delighted we made that decision. We've just praised God for all that he's done in this last year, and it's been a delight. But how did I know that that was the right thing to do? How did I know that I should marry Mandy or go to more college or and all these other things? The issue of guidance is a, a big thing for us as Christians because we need to make decisions every day. And sometimes we need to make really, really big decisions. We're going to be looking today at the topic of God's guidance as we explore the missionary journey of the Apostle Paul to Macedonia. And you'll see that there are lots of divine doors that open and close. His ministry gives us an example of someone who wisely follows the word of God. And we'll see a great tale of God's work in Acts chapter 16 and 17 that we're looking at today. And we'll see how God guided him and reflect on how God guides us today. You remember last week that they came up with a letter from Jerusalem that talked about how Gentiles and Jewish Christians can get on together. Well, Paul now wants to share that Jerusalem letter. He wants to share the Jerusalem letter with all the places that he had previously visited. And on the way, we learnt last week, he went to Lystra with Silas and they recruited Timothy and through their ministry they saw great growth, growth for individual Christians and great growth in number for the church. Good things are happening. And now we're at the point where we look at Paul's second missionary journey and they head through the heart of modern-day Turkey. But how do they decide where to go? 
Well, we pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 16. Next, Paul and Silas travelled through the area of Phrygia and Galatia because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. They wanted to go to Asia, not so that they could have yum char and dim sims, not that Asia, it's the Asia that was actually the western part of modern-day Turkey. And they thought, we'll go straight through there. But the Holy Spirit said, no, you're not going to go straight west. You're going to go north. For some reason, the Holy Spirit prevents the missionaries from going the direction they had intended. And it continues, verse 7 and 8, that then coming to the borders of Mysia, which is up the top of modern-day Turkey, that they headed north for the province of Bithynia, but again the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there, So instead, they went west towards the Aegean Sea through Mysia to the seaport of Troas. So if you can kind of imagine a big map of Greece and Macedonia and the Aegean Sea and then Turkey's here and down there is Israel. They've come across through the middle of Turkey up to the top and across to the Aegean Sea and that's where they are right now. They're actually up there in the port of Troas, which I went around and Google Earth and Maps and things this week and had a look. It's only about 20 k's from Anzac Cove in Gallipoli. So if you sort of get your heads around that, on the, on the coast of the Aegean Sea, up around the Dardanelles and just south of there. So they are there, and for some reason they've got there because God's open and closed doors. We're not exactly sure exactly how it is that God got them to have these doors opening and closing. Maybe it's because Silas was a prophet and he was able to tell them the word of God. Um, maybe there was a strong feeling they had. And they woke up saying, oh, we can't go through Asia. No, let's not go through Asia. Let's go north. Or maybe the roads were blocked or something stopped them from being able to go that way. Whatever it is, they were guided. And it's worth noting that God guides in many ways today. From time to time, you probably have had those sorts of gut feels where you think, oh, I just... I've got two good choices here. Both of them are godly choices. Maybe you've got two job description, uh, job offers, and you're thinking, well, both of them are pretty good. Or, or, or maybe you've got two places you can go on holidays, or, or maybe you've got two options for aged care, or retire, or whatever it is. And you've got these two options, two two places that have accepted your offer to buy a house or something. Which one do you go with? And you just think, I'm feeling like it's that one. Yeah, so am I. Let's do it. Who knows exactly how they've guided, God has guided them in this particular situation, but he has closed doors and opened doors. Uh, again, going back to what happened last year with our decision to be here full-time at Jamboree, uh, I remember we turned up, I turned up to the parish council meeting on the 23rd of July and had no, no expectation at all that, that, that halfway through that meeting I'd be thinking, I reckon I need to be here full-time next year. I then met with wardens and others and spoke to the bishop and, of course, spoke to Mandy, who said, of course, and away we went. It was like doors were opening here, not closing. And sometimes that's the way that God will work to give us guidance about where to go. But sometimes the hunch or gut feel, it's more than just that. It's very, very obvious, like in verses 9 and 10. Because that night Paul had a vision. A man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. 
So we decided to leave for Macedonia at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. Um, th- this is a pretty obvious form of guidance. Oh, it could have been a nightmare, and Paul woke up and thought, boy, he's scary, I'm not going to Macedonia. But he decided he would. The Macedonian man pleads for help, and so they decide this is the way to do that. And so that's the plan. But just let's pause for a moment and notice that something has changed in the book of Acts. Luke has been spending his time saying, they did that, and then they did that, and then he did that, and all of that. But now it says, we and us. And so in verse 11, it says, we boarded a boat at Troas and sailed straight across the island of Samothrace, and the next day we we landed at Neapolis. From there we reached Philippi, a major city of that district of Macedonia and a Roman colony, and we stayed there several days. The reason it now says we is because Dr Luke, who wrote Acts, is now part of the gang. He's actually in the story himself, not just reporting it from a distance. And you see here that he has got involved. Some people... Well, at least one person has a funny theory that they think that the man of Macedonia is actually Dr. Luke himself, who's from Macedonia. Uh, Unlikely, but it's a cute little concept. But whatever it is, he's with them and they've headed across the Aegean Sea. Okay, so you've got the big Aegean Sea there. That's all Turkey here. The Aegean Sea, Macedonia, and then down to Greece. They've crossed across it and they've landed now eventually at this place called Philippi. They arrive in Philippi, uh, which is the place that Paul will eventually write the letter of Philippians to. That's that bunch of people. It's a pretty big and important Roman colony, and they spent quite a bit of time there. And so what do they do when they get there? They enact their normal strategy. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Let's say it together. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, interactive sermon this morning. It's his strategy, and so he goes about doing that. And normally they'd go off to a synagogue because it's kind of like, you want to hang out with Jews? This is the place to be. But kind of not this time. Verse 13, on the Sabbath we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer, and we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. It seems that even though it was a major town, it didn't have a formal Jewish presence there. Otherwise, they would have gone to the synagogue. Uh, But nonetheless, there were a bunch of people there, women actually, praying together. And as they're there, they start talking to these prayerful women, and we meet about one of them. Verse 14. Her name was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth who worshipped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. It's a lovely story. She is doing the listening and she accepts what she's told. But Paul is doing the talking. But the Lord has opened her heart. Can you see there's quite a few cooks in this kitchen and the Lord is responsible for what is happening. Uh, on Thursday, uh, John Roston and I were teaching our Year 3, 4, 5 and 6 class and uh, at, across the fence at the Danbury Public School and uh, the curriculum said, today's the day you need to really talk to the kids about how to become a Christian. 
And so there we were telling them about how to become a Christian. Well, we tell them about Jesus things every single week. Uh, there was a particular time and I was trying to explain to them that you've got sort of like you put your hand out here, that's you and up there's God and then there's a blockage which is a sin and then you need to move the sin from you onto Jesus who takes it and it means that you can be friends with God unobstructed and then Jesus deals with the sin on the as he dies and rises again and that's the way. I explained it to them and then said, why don't you get into pairs and tell each other? And so I look around the room. It was kind of cool, John, wasn't it? Everyone was sort of, you see the kids saying, oh, they get a book and they say, well, that goes on to Jesus. I'm thinking, they're all evangelizing each other. How cool is that? So there's all of the gospeling is happening. But what actually affects them is when the Lord opens their heart and accepts that. And it's lovely to see little bits of fruit along the way. One particular kid came up to me and he said, you know, oh, I always want you to know that during the week I decided to follow Jesus. I said, that's pretty cool, isn't it? He said, the second time I've done that. I said, great. He might do it a few more times. That's all right. But the Lord's opened his heart. It's a great story, isn't it? This is what's happened here also, sitting there on the side of the river with Lydia from Thyatira. And Lydia has accepted Paul's teaching. And as a result of that, something significant happens. We read verse 15, that she and her household were baptised and she asked us to be her guests. If you agree that I am a true believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my home. And she urged us until we agreed. <laughs> Lydia's from Macedonia. You know, she's around that area. You could just imagine her. It's not the, the kind of the polite Anglo-Saxon. Uh, I request your company. It's like, come to my house. Come, we have lots of olives and garlic. Come on. No, I'm fine. Thanks. No, come along. Come along. It's like, oh, no, I'm fine. No, really, really. I will not take no for an answer. Okay, where you go? I, I used to go to a church with lots and lots of Greeks. I can picture it right there. And they and I love this line. And she urged us until we agreed. It's like, all right. And so she is so overcome with their message. She says, you must come to my house. And so they do. But when they get there, we read that they were baptized. The whole household was baptised, every single one of them. Uh, her commitment to Jesus was infectious. And indeed, she says, the whole household, all the kids and the slaves and everyone, were all going to do it together. And we read that and we kind of think that's a bit weird for us because we are so individualistic about our relationship with God. And rightly so. It's got to be a personal decision. I have decided to follow Jesus. That's, that's a thing, right? But we also need to realise that historically, God saved households. It's just like in the Passover. You know that they had the Exodus. If one person from the household believed in the Lord, they would take the blood of a lamb and splash it on the doorpost and then the angel of death would pass over the house and not kill the firstborn. The whole household was saved in that sense. And you see that in the way that God works through his covenant his covenant blessings are to a household. And Lydia understood that. And so the whole household was baptised. We're going to see here, and also in a moment's time, when an entire household is baptised, which I'm sure that included all the babies as well. And it's not like we can say, please stand up and tell us the Apostles' Creed first. It's like they're just in the mum's arms and they're, they're hanging around with dad, goo goo gaga, taking the first steps. And it's like, you are baptised too because you are in our family of believers. And I think there are solid arguments throughout the scriptures for infant baptism. And I think this is one of those spots right here 
uh, amongst others as well. And if you want to know more about that, ask me a question about baptism of infants and adults, and I'd love to answer it. But we see then, now we go to meet another person. This particular lady, we read in verse 16, as they were going down to the place of prayer, they met a slave girl who had a spirit that enabled her to tell the future. She earned a lot of money for her masters by telling fortunes. So she's got this spirit in her that enables her to say to people, here's your future, and it's making good cash for the master, the fortune-telling slave who makes her master a fortune. (laughs) And not only does she tell the fortunes of the future, but she's actually got this perception that is spiritual. And so verse 18, she followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God and they have come to tell you how to be saved. And this went on day after day until Paul got so exasperated that he turned and said to the demon within her, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And instantly it left her. It's like everywhere they're walking, she's saying, these are guys, it's like, will you just be quiet? And then eventually it's like, demon, will you get out of her? And the demon does. And you've got to say that this woman would have great relief We get a picture of what it's like to have the demons taken out of you when Jesus did just that as he walked on earth. You can see the relief. You know, the man at the tombs, he went home and clothed himself and and got back into normal life. It's wonderful relief. And you think everybody would be excited, but not the master. Verse 19, her master's hopes of wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the authorities at the marketplace. The whole city is in uproar because of these Jews, they shouted to the city officials. See, they are very angry. The slave master is very angry at Paul for the exorcism. So this girl had this magic power and you have taken the magic power away and I can't take her down to the carnival anymore and make money out of her. You have made me angry and I'm going to get revenge And as they physically drag Paul and Silas before the officials, we read that their claim, verse 21, is that they are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. And is that true or is it not? Doesn't matter. Because straight away we read that a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape and so the jailer put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. No trial, no opportunity to say, is this true or not? They just grabbed and beaten up to within an inch of their life and thrown into maximum security. That's neither law nor order. And how do they respond? I reckon if I was Paul, I would just lie there and in the fetal position and rock and say, what have I done to deserve this? But no. Around midnight, verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. <laughs> and the other prisoners were listening. You just can't stop these guys. I love this. They now have prison prayer and praise. It's a beautiful picture. And... They're singing, and they know that the other prisoners are listening too. The other prisoners who must be saying, what is it about you guys? Because even though you've been beaten up to a pulp for following Jesus, 
the one who is the Messiah, you say. You are of joy. Tell me about it. You can imagine that. And then God answers their prayers. Verse 26, suddenly there was a massive earthquake. Yeah. And the prison was shaken to its foundations. Yeah. All the doors immediately flew open and the chains of every prisoner fell off. (laughs) You know, you ask for prayer and God answers and he did. It's an amazing uh, way that they've been released from captivity, literally in that way. It's another great answer to prayer. It's another act of freedom. The, the previous one, we had the freedom of the slave woman from the bondage to that demon. Now we've got the freedom of everybody from the bondage to their shackles there in prison. And you'd expect everybody everywhere to be happy about it. Well, the, it turns out the jailer's a bit unhappy about it. Uh, we read in verse 27 that the jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open and he assumed the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Don't kill yourself! We're all here! Uh, the, the prison jailer knew that if he had failed so spectacularly, his life wasn't worth living. It's like, mate, you had one job and now there are no prisoners here. What's gone wrong? But Paul stops them. And the jailer is amazed when he sees that everyone's remained there and they haven't left when they could have. You know, it's a bit like when you, you leave the door open at the fence and you think, oh, the door's open so the dogs must have got out. And they're still sitting, so they're still sitting around. It's the same thing here. The, the prisoners are like, we're still in prison, it's okay, don't worry about it. And the jailer's pretty excited. Verse 29, the jailer calls for lights. It's not like kind of switch them on. It's like light up a torch. And he runs to the dungeon and he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's blown away. He's just about killed himself. And now he knows that his job's not at risk because all the prisoners are still there. And he knows that they've got a message, a message that brings salvation. And he says, how can I be saved? Why would he ask that question? You don't ask to be saved unless you need saving, unless there's something that's wrong, unless you're at risk of something. Uh, I take it that the Philippian jailer has recognised that he is not friends with this God that they're singing and praying to. And this God is supernatural and real and powerful and he needs to be saved from the wrath that is coming from this powerful God. And so he says, how will I be saved? Has anyone ever asked you that question? It's a short little pithy question. You you almost need to get your kind of lift spiel, your your kind of water cooler sort of answer ready, you know, that real quick answer. You get into the lift, you know, it's like um, ground floor. Uh, Can you, uh, level 12. Oh, thanks, 12. Dink. Level one. Oh, you're a Christian. Level two. Yeah, level three. What must I do to be saved? Level four, level five, level six. What would you say? Well, Paul and Silas, level seven. Believe in the Lord Jesus, level eight, and you will be saved, level nine, along with everyone in your household, level 10, level 11, level 12. Bing, thank you. And he walks out the door. It's the kind of the quick grab. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in him. You just need to believe. Now, what does it mean to believe? Is it like consent? It's like, yes, I think that's true. Yes, I think that's true. That's good. I don't think it's that kind of belief that he's talking about there. 
I think it's the kind of belief that a parachutist has as they place on their back a parachute and the red light goes to green and the door opens and they leap out and they say, I trust in this parachute. Do you really trust this parachute? I trust in this parachute completely. And they pull the ripcord and their trust is founded. It's up it goes, it expands, and it brings them safely down to earth. Complete trust. If they didn't trust in that parachute, there's no way they'd jump. And so that is what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus, is I put my whole life in your hands. And that's what he's done. And so verse 32, they also shared the word of the Lord with him, the jailer, and with all who lived in his household, the whole lot of them, again. And the response, verse 33, is even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. It's a beautiful picture because they're bleeding and in all sorts of pain. And then the jailer and everyone in his household were immediately baptised. And he brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he, he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. They're all baptised. Uh, you know, is it the same water that was used to clean the blood off the back of those who had been injured for the sake of Christ? That the blood is then the water is then used to baptise those new believers in Christ? Not to be ghastly to think of it that way, but you kind of it's all happening. All this water stuff's happening at the same time, and they are rejoicing because now they know that they believe in God. It's a beautiful turnaround here, and the whole family again is baptised. The whole household is baptised together. It's like, everyone, this is a thing, right? Let's jump in together. Okay, we are going to have our affiliation to Christ, and so they do. Well, after that very eventful night, Paul and Silas receive some good news. Verse 35, the next morning the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. And so the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said that you and Silas are free to leave, so go in peace. And you think, ah, that's a nice ending to the story. <laughs> but Paul is not so quick to just let it finish that way. Remember, there's been a pretty serious injustice. No chance to have a trial at all. And that's particularly a problem when, well, verse 37, Paul says, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison and we are Roman citizens. So now they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. And then when the police report this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. No kidding. It's like, did you know that they were Roman citizens? No, I thought you knew they, were Roman they weren't Roman citizens. But I would, we would never have done this if they were Roman citizens. Oh, dear, this is really not going to look good. What do we do? And so verse 39, the Roman citizens, you know, come along, the, 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 uh, the Roman authorities come to the jail and apologise to them, and they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. Please just go. No one ever needs to know that this happened. Uh, but it doesn't seem that that's the first thing that Paul and Silas have in mind because verse 40, they left the prison. They go back to Lydia's home from some more Masaka, maybe, or whatever it is, and there they met with the believers in that church, home church, and encouraged them once more, and they left town. They would be saying, you're never going to believe what happened. It was an amazing miracle, and they got together and said, wow, 
the Lord really is in control and this Jesus whom we believe, he really is powerful. It was an encouragement to the believers. The believers are encouraged by the miracle. It's lovely when we see God work in a, in a way that just surprises us. When we see a remarkable healing that we never saw coming or that was just powerful beyond our belief. Someone whose body was riddled with cancer turns up the next day to the doctor and they do another test and they say it's all gone and we've never seen that kind of thing happen before. Wow. Or someone who has a dramatic conversion. We saw that with the Apostle Paul from a Christian hater to the guy who is the greatest Christian advocate in history. Uh, on the front of the news sheet, there's a picture of a rapper called Kanye West. You may never have heard of him before, and that's okay. But he is very, very famous for lots of reasons. Amongst other things, he's married to Kim Kardashian, who you may have heard of. Anyway, this last year, he's become a follower of Jesus. And his latest album, which is now at the number one in the worldwide charts, is called Jesus is King. It's extraordinary transformation. And I've heard him interviewed this week on all the talk show hosts, all the talk show circuit of the US and everything like that. And he keeps talking about how he's a follower of Jesus and he reads his Bible and he's praying. And he, and they, and he, one guy said, you know, so now you're a Christian artist, is that right? He said, no, I'm just a Christian everything. <laughs> That's amazing. And I get encouraged when I see that. I'm also praying for him because it's going to be really hard to be in that situation, certainly when he was a pretty torrid kind of guy with the stuff that he would sing about. Now he's become so seriously converted, it appears. Keep praying for him. But these little things encourage us. And that's why Paul wanted to go back with Silas and show Lydia and his fa her family what had happened. Anyway, they then leave there, chapter 17, verse 1, and they head through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they come to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue, and the same sort of pattern happened. We read in verse 2 and 3 that it was Paul's custom. He went to the synagogue service. Why? Because first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Same thing happens. He turns up there for three Sabbaths in a row. He used the scriptures to reason with the people. He explained the prophecies and proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. It's kind of a summary of what he normally did. Straight to the synagogue, Je the Messiah you're looking for is Jesus. And verse 4, the response is that some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and followed Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. Really good response, all of that. But as to be expected, the pattern continues that some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and to start a riot, and they attacked the home of Jason, searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out to the crowd, and not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world, they shouted, and now they are disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king, named Jesus. That's the charge. That when they say Jesus is king, they're actually saying that Caesar is not king. That in a sense, Jesus is king can be seen as treason. You see, we, we pray for Elizabeth, our queen, and those that she appoints and, you know, Scott Morrison and all the rest of the gang. We, we, we follow them and all of that. 
But ultimately, we say that Jesus is king. And if you're a bit funny about that as a king, you might take that to heart and say, well, I want to wipe out anyone who is saying I should have allegiance to someone else. And that was the charge that they had there. And so, verse 8, we read that the people of the city as well as the city council were thrown into turmoil by their reports, saying this is really bad, what Paul and Silas are doing. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and then they released them. Great conversions in Thessalonica, pretty angry opponents. And so, verse 10, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, another place down the coast, when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, first for the, then for the... And so then the people of Berea, were more, we read that they were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message, and they searched the scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth, and as a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Same thing happened, except without necessarily as much conflict right there. I kind of love the Bereans. They search the scriptures day after day. These Bereans search the scriptures every day. They're like, so Paul, what you're saying is just hang on a second, let me get my Bible out, Isaiah 53. You're saying that the suffering servant is actually Jesus of Nazareth. Correct. Oh, and um, when I turn over to Psalm 2, you're saying that the, yeah, they're searching to say, is it true? And the answers they're getting are, Yes, it's like, whoa, this makes sense. I love the Bereans. Bereans are good. Be like the Bereans. But when some of the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. Oh, dear. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. And then they returned to Berea with instructions for Paul, for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. And that's the end of our passage tonight, uh, today. You see, they basically say, the Bereans are having beef. We've just got to send Paul on his way. Uh, you, you'd imagine Paul goes to the travel agent and says, uh, you know, so what's my itinerary? Well, you're having two nights over here in Philippi and then a couple of days over in Thessalonica and then a stop over in Berea. It's like, no, he's just like gets beaten up, thrown out, grabbed, thrown to the back of a truck, driven down, you know, go to Athens. This is the way the Lord is giving him guidance. It's pretty clear guidance. He's just going along for the ride. Uh, that kind of guidance is painful but nice. It's pretty clear. <laughs> uh, but we need to find out how it is that we get our guidance. And that's to return back to the opening theme. It's really important that we understand that we know God's mind by reading the Bible. This is really, really important. That God is never going to give you a gut feel to sin. It might be that you're having a horrible relation with a, 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 with a person who was once a close friend and you're just feeling in your heart, you know, I feel like the Lord might be saying I need to murder them. Then you open up the Bible and says, don't murder. Uh, one of those is wrong. I wonder which one. Well, I reckon it's the Bible that's got it wrong. Okay. You see, we need to start with the Bible. That is where we get the clear word of God. And then when it's kind of like, well, do I take this job or that job? Or do I marry this person or wait for someone else or whatever it is? You pray and then you act and trust. As I once heard someone say that you know that you have married the right person when you wake up the day after your wedding. And you're lying next to them. Say, the Lord has given me this person. How do you choose who you should marry? 
Well, the Bible's clear about who are the types of people that Christians should marry. You know, one person, opposite sex, for life, death to your part, all that stuff, unless, unless you're single for life. This is the guidance that we know that is certain, and the rest we just pray and go for it. And we pray that in this sovereign hand of God that he will guide us in our way and give us little kind of open and closed doors along the way and gut feels here and there as well. But in all of this, I can say it is good to serve a sovereign God who is good and loves us. And so we depend on him. Let me pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, so much for your great love. And we thank you that you guide us by your spirit through your scriptures. You guide us as you open and close doors and lead us in different ways. And we thank you, Father, as we look back on life and see how you have held us and how you have taken us on this journey. And we thank you for that the good times and the bad times. And we thank you, Father, that you are growing us to be more and more like Christ in every time. We thank you for the word that Paul and Silas brought and the number of people who have come to follow Jesus through it. And we thank you that even to this day people are following Jesus because of the word that you gave to Paul and that we have here in front of us in your word. Help us to believe it and trust it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.